If you like the podcast, please subscribe and rate on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can follow Germania, Divided and United, on Twitter and Instagram at GermaniaPod. Hello, welcome to Germania, Divided and United. Episode 1.23, The King and the General. In January of 393, Theodosius made it clear that he would not tolerate the rule of Eugenius in the Western Roman Empire. He named his eight-year-old son, Honorius, as Augustus of the West. However, in the decade between the Battle of Adrianople and the defeat of Maximus, the armies of the East were weakened, and garrisoning the border with Persia remained a critical responsibility of the Eastern Augustus. Theodosius knew he did not have the quantity or quality of troops he would need to defeat Arbogastes. Part of the solution would be calling on his Gothic allies, who had settled in the Balkans. The other part would require recruiting and training new soldiers to the Eastern Legions. Which means that it is time to introduce two of the most important figures tied to the further Germanization of Rome, the Gothic King Alaric and the Vandal General Stilicho. The two men will spend the next 15 years as allies, rivals, and enemies, and are the central narrative figures of Western Roman history over that period. Alaric was born around 370, on an island in the mouth of the Danube River, part of modern Romania. His family was part of the confederation that followed Fritigern across the Danube in 376, and so he spent his early life migrating across the Balkan Peninsula until the Goths secured their position in Rome with the treaty with Theodosius in 382. According to Jordanus, he was part of a noble Tervingai family, the Balti. He would have spent his youth among veterans of the Battle of Adrianople, who had crushed the Roman army, while also seeing that many of the great Roman estates of the regions were run by Gothic slaves. Wealthy Romans both looked down upon and depended on the Goths during this period, not a great dynamic. Flavius Stilicho was roughly a decade older than Alaric. His father was a Vandal who served in the Roman cavalry, and his mother was a Roman provincial. He followed his father into the Roman army, and there was never a question about his loyalty. He was fully committed to serving the empire. While he did not come from a noble family, he must have demonstrated skill and competence early on, as he was sent as an envoy to Persia in 383 to negotiate the peace treaty with the Sassanid emperor Shapur III. The final treaty of 387 cleaned up the border between the two great empires, settled their disputes in Armenia, and then provided Theodosius with the reassurances he needed to go west and defeat Maximus in 388. Throughout the 380s and early 390s, Stilicho continued to progress through the ranks of the Roman army. Recognizing him as a capable officer, Theodosius married his niece to Stilicho, ensuring his loyalty to the house of Theodosius. The couple eventually had three children, one boy and two girls. The two girls would become the first and second wives of Honorius, making Stilicho the father-in-law of the Western Augustus. But now we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. In 393, Theodosius named Stilicho the Magister Utrusque Militum for the East, or the Master of Both Forces. He took charge of the effort to recruit and train the new army, 
which took the next 18 months. Finally, in May of 394, Theodosius personally began leading the army west towards the Alpine passes into Italia. This army included roughly 20,000 Gothic auxiliaries, called up as part of the terms of the treaty in 382. There had been disagreement among some of the Gothic chiefs as to whether or not they should honor the treaty and answer Theodosius' call for support. One side argued that the interests of the Goths did not align with the interests of Rome, while the other argued that breaking their alliance with Theodosius would just cause problems for them in the long run. In the end, the Goths kept the alliance, although some stories hold that it is because the chief advocating for breaking the truce was killed in a brawl. Arbogastes had taken part in the invasion to depose Maximus six years earlier, and part of his assessment was that Maximus had erred by dividing his army, sending some of them into the Balkans to confront the eastern army, while others remained behind to guard the Alpine passes. Determined not to make the same mistake, Arbogastes kept the western forces together and camped them at the western end of the Alps. They would allow Theodosius to enter the passes unopposed, but they would be ready for him when he tried to come down out of the mountains into Italia. By taking the time to set up his defenses, Arbogastes seized all of the high ground in the area, ensuring that Theodosius' army would have to attack uphill. The upcoming battle is known as the Battle of the Frigidus, or the Battle of the Frozen River. The exact location of the battle is not known, but it took place in a valley to the northeast of Aquileia, close to a river crossing. The eastern army finally made its way out of the Alps in early September, and they were almost immediately on top of Arbogastes' camp. Without taking the time to properly scout the area, Theodosius had the vanguard of his army attack on September the 5th, 394. And by the vanguard, I mean the Gothic auxiliaries. He had the Goths engage in a frontal assault on Arbogastes' forces. The fighting was hard and bloody. The western forces held together and repulsed the eastern army, and supposedly half of the Gothic forces were killed on that first day. The Goths of this generation and future generations would not forget the callous manner in which Theodosius had used their army as part of his battle plan, and the idea that the Goths and Romans did not have common interests would continue to crop up in the future. So much for that lover of peace and the Goths stuff. Some of the ancient historians suggest that Theodosius purposely let the Goths be killed in order to weaken them for the future. To me, that doesn't really make too much sense, as Theodosius was leading the army personally, and after the disaster of the first day of fighting, he was in a pretty bad spot. With morale low in the camp that night, it seemed like the western army was going to finish them off the following day. Arbogastes also liked the position his army was in, following their strong performance during the first day of battle. In fact, his biggest concern was that Theodosius would try to retreat in the night, sneaking back across the Alps into the Central Empire. To that end, he sent some of his soldiers around behind the Eastern Army to block off the passes and force them to stand and fight. The men who occupied those passes found themselves in a very profitable position. Separated from Arbogastes, they opened negotiations with Theodosius to defect to his side, and they were able to extract a large price in terms of money and titles. Theodosius agreed to all their demands, and in a snap, he was no longer surrounded, and he had reinforcements that he desperately needed. 
Despite this lucky break for Theodosius, as the armies lined up on the morning of September 6th to continue fighting, Arbogastes was still in an advantageous position, and likely assumed that he would crush the eastern army. But, unfortunately, he hadn't checked the weather forecast. The area north of the Adriatic Sea is periodically hit with a weather phenomenon known as the Bora. When a front of warm, low-pressure sea air meets with a cold, high-pressure front from the mountains, wind can blow from the north and northeast at speeds that resemble a Category 4 or 5 hurricane. In December of 2003, a Bora wind in Croatia was measured at 304 kilometers per hour, comparable to the strongest wind speeds ever recorded by a hurricane in the United States. And on September 6, 394, one of these Bora winds swept down from the mountains and blew directly into the faces of Arbogasti's army. The historical records claim that the winds were so strong that when the western army fired arrows or javelins at their enemies, they would blow directly back at the man who had fired them. To me, this story closely resembles the story of the rain miracle of the Marcomannic Wars, with a miraculous victory coming due to the mercy of meteorology. In the aftermath of the battle, Eugenius was captured and brought to Theodosius, who immediately had him executed. Arbogastes escaped the field and hoped to regather his army, but when it was clear that his cause was lost, he fell on his sword a few days later. So now, in September of 394, for the first time since Valens and Valentinian divided the empire 30 years before, Rome was now commanded by a single Augustus. Theodosius had taken over the Eastern Empire in the aftermath of one of its worst defeats at the Battle of Adrianople, and in 15 years he had made peace with the Goths, made peace with Persia, unified the imperial family by marrying Valentinian's daughter, and now had won two civil wars, bringing the Western Empire under his control. He was not yet 50 years old, so the expectation was that he would serve at least another decade to make his mark on Rome and prepare his two sons to serve as worthy imperial successors. In any summary of the life of Theodosius, the first fact mentioned is always that he was the last man to rule a unified Roman Empire. While the two halves of the empire never really divorced, after Theodosius there would always be one power base in Constantinople and another in Italia that would act as rivals as often as allies and each would start to have its own policies and priorities based on the political, social, and environmental circumstances of their respective regions. So we remember Theodosius as the last man to rule the entire Roman Empire, similarly for the same reason we remember Hadrian for his wall. It is an easy fact to slip into a history book, and it does serve as a larger milepost for the status of the empire, but it is not really central to his actual legacy because Theodosius was not the unified Augustus long enough to make any further mark on the empire. His reign did not even last another 150 days, as Theodosius suffered what we now believe was an endema and died on January 17, 395. The death of Theodosius caused the initial break between Stilicho and Alaric, who had so recently been allies in the war against Arbogastes. The political reality was toppled, and in the scramble for influence that followed, each man became the center of a different factional power base. Per his wishes, power in the empire fell to the two sons of Theodosius. His eldest, Arcadius, who was 17 or 18 years old, 
took over as the Eastern Augustus. His younger son, Honorius, now ten, took over as the Western Augustus. This was not really a succession, because both sons had been elevated and served as nominal co-Augusti for many years by this point. But the sons of Theodosius were not worthy successors to the legacy he and his father had built, and both spent the rest of their lives dominated by the ministers, generals, and secretaries who surrounded them. Stilicho immediately took over as the de facto regent of the West. He was the Magister Militum, he was part of the imperial family by marriage, and with such a young Augustus, he was the man everyone turned to. He would be the dominant figure in the court of Honorius until his death in 408. Following the Battle of the Frigidus, the Goths had returned back to their homes in Thrace. The combination of the massive casualties suffered at the battle, with the sudden death of the Augustus who had been their primary benefactor within Rome, made this a pivotal moment for their nation. The central concerns that drove Goth decision-making at this point were, first, they did not believe they could trust the new emperors and the courts that surrounded them. The weaknesses of the emperors brought inherent instability to policy-making, as different factions saw their influence wax and wane around them, so any future agreements would be tenuous. Second, remaining as an on-call auxiliary army without access to the inner circle of military planning would lead them to be treated as disposable in any future wars. Several Gothic warriors had hopes of achieving high rank in the Roman military following their service at the Battle of Frigidus, but the death of Theodosius put an end to those plans. So the consensus was that the Gothic nation within Rome would need to consolidate around a true king who could advocate on their behalf. And so they selected a son of the Balti family, Alaric, who we now remember as the first king of the Visigoths. So this is the moment in history when we begin to differentiate between two kingdoms of Goths, the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths. The first thing to remember is that these labels meant nothing at the time. They are labels that historians have used in order to make everything more manageable. Visigoths just means Western Goth, and Ostrogoth means Eastern Goth. The nomenclature began to develop in the early 6th century with the historians Cassiodorus and Jordanus. The Western Goths were the Goths who eventually established a kingdom on the Iberian Peninsula and southwest Gaul. The Eastern Goths eventually established a kingdom in Italy and the Balkans. The Visigoths are generally seen as the descendants of the Tervingai Goths that crossed the Danube with Fredegern in 376, made the treaty with Theodosius in 382, and have now elevated Alaric to be their first king. Upon assuming the position of king of the Visigoths, Alaric wanted to win his people a better position within Rome, so he led the Goths on raids of the estates and towns of the other Illyrian provinces. It is important to note that for all the conflict and the battles that Alaric will engage in, he was not trying to destroy the Roman Empire. Since the Photos of 382, the Goths were now a nation within the broader Roman government. They had fought for the true emperor Theodosius in two civil wars. Going forward, they were trying to use the means at their disposal to pressure the central government to give them a more favorable arrangement and better rights and privileges as any other disenfranchised group would do. In all of the conflicts, Alaric was never asking for some kind of independent Gothic nation. He continually negotiated for a position as a general in the Roman army. 
In his book, The Invasion of Europe by the Barbarians, historian J.B. Burry argues that the fact that even after becoming the Gothic king, Alaric continued to fight for a generalship in the Roman army highlights just how weak the Germanic kings were. Quote, they had become accustomed to see of how little account a rex was in the eyes of a praetorian prefect or even of a provincial governor, unquote. Now, I do not think this is quite right. The role of a king had never been as prestigious for the Germanic tribes as it would become in later centuries in Europe or as prestigious as the Roman Augustus was contemporaneously. The prestige of Germanic kings was probably on the rise compared to where it had been in the first century. Alaric sought Roman generalship due to the legitimacy it would provide him within the imperial power structure and the access it would give him to policy discussions. While the Goths were raiding in Illyricum, the armies of the Eastern Empire were in disarray. Most of their soldiers were still in the west following the Battle of the Frigidus. At this point, Stilicho organized a force of both western and eastern legions and crossed into the central empire to stop Alaric. At the same time, Stilicho had opened up negotiations with Constantinople. What did Stilicho have to negotiate with the eastern court? Why, the administrative division of the empire, of course. From the time of the Tetrarchy, the western provinces of Illyria had always been part of the western Augustus' span of control. These provinces held the eastern entrances to the Alpine passes into Italia, so it was important to the defense of the home peninsula and the capital in Milan. Following the Battle of Adrianople, however, Theodosius had been given control of all of Illyricum and the central empire in order to create a unified theater against the Gothic invasion. With the death of Theodosius, Stilicho was now demanding return of control of these provinces to the western court. Since the crisis years of the mid-3rd century, the provinces of Illyricum had been the most fertile recruiting ground for soldiers. Taking control of these provinces would greatly improve Stilicho's ability to defend against both Alaric's Goths and the Germans crossing along the Rhine. So, while Stilicho pursued Alaric, he was also bargaining for control of Illyricum with Arcadius and his advisors in Constantinople. The two armies maneuvered around each other without engaging in a major battle, each trying to gain better position. They were in the area of Thessaly in Greece, when Stilicho received a message from Arcadius demanding that he return the Eastern Legions and his army at once. Rather than bringing Alaric to a battle, Stilicho complied in releasing the eastern soldiers, and then retreated with the rest of his army back to the west. He would maintain later that if not for the meddling of the east, he would have crushed Alaric right then, but there's good reason to believe that he was bluffing. Much as the Visigoths did not see themselves as the destroyers of Rome, the Roman leadership did not view the Visigoths as an enemy to be expelled at all costs. The Visigoths were clearly a powerful military ally. He could be used to defend the borders of the empire from further northern invasion. Additionally, as the eastern and western courts jockeyed for power, this army in the central empire could tip the balance one way or the other, depending on who they allied with. But in the meantime, the Visigoths continued to raid Greece for the supplies and provisions that they needed and the treasures that they wanted. They spared the city of Athens, but plundered its port and the nearby area, including the Temple of Eleusis, 
which ended the centuries-old practice of the Aleutian Mysteries. For all of 396, the Visigoths occupied the Peloponnese, sacking every town in the area. In a provocative move, Stilicho brought a western army back to the region in 397, and the two forces maneuvered around each other, but did not engage in any kind of decisive battle. This was provocative because Greece was very clearly the domain of the eastern court, and Stilicho did not have permission to bring troops to the area. Likely, Stilicho was planning to negotiate some kind of truce to bring Alaric under his sphere of influence, but we'll never know his true intent. Before a settlement could be reached, Stilicho took his army back to Italia. There is no consensus on if this was due to messages and negotiations from Constantinople, or information he received from Milan, or due to the unrest that was breaking out in North Africa, but either way, Stilicho left and Alaric was again completely in charge of the central empire. At this point, the eastern court intervened. With no way to deal with the Visigoths, Arcadius and his ministers gave in to Alaric's primary demand. The king was named Magister Militum for Illyricum, the supreme Roman military commander for the region. Stilicho, and many others, were not happy with this development. The thought of having the roles of Roman military commander and Gothic king unified in one man was a risk for the empire, as it elevated the Visigoth nation to a superior place within the Roman Empire. But the eastern court saw co-opting the Visigoths as better than trying to fight with them in the Balkans. So, for the time, Alaric got the position he had coveted. Now that Alaric was Magister Militum, all the supplies and food that the Visigoths had to steal and fight for were directed to them as the standard provisions of the army. The Visigoths had a secure position with an alliance with Constantinople. Whatever Stilicho's opinion, he could not bring troops into Illyricum again without starting a civil war. And for a time, there would be peace between Alaric, Stilicho, and the Eastern Court. For a brief time. I want to take this opportunity to thank all of you for listening, and I especially want to shout out Germania's number one fan, Ray Hansen. Ray, thank you for all of your support and kind words. I'll be back next week as we watch the relationship between Alaric and the East break down and Stilicho continue to manage the West as more and more Germanic tribes cross into Rome. Anti-barbarian sentiments would grow within the Roman elite, which would eventually topple Stilicho from power and lead Alaric to take drastic action by laying siege to Rome itself.